0: Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead. I am Len. I am your host for this week, uh, representing the landowners, because I have all the power right now and everyone will quickly try to take it away from me as soon as we bring up any topic related to this game. Uh, we also have representing the rural folk, 3MA's composting and brush removal advisor, John Bolding. Good morning. None of us vote. For the armed forces, by default, as the only person on this panel with any actual military experience, so we're probably screwed. We have PC Games In's Ian Boudreaux.
1: That's that's right. That's me. I forgot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, How's it going, everybody? Uh, from the petite bourgeoisie, <laughs> the ones who are always unsatisfied no matter what you do, we have Kotaku's Luke Plunkett.
2: Good evening, everybody. That's a beautiful way of summing it up too thank you <laughs>
0: <laughs> and from the intelligentsia 3ma's official unofficial academic consultant unc chapel hills dr brett devereau hey good to be here and uh if you hadn't already guessed we are talking about at last victoria 3 uh the most recent grand strategy game from paradox development studio covering the tumultuous century from 1836 to 1936 uh, with a heavy focus on demographics, economics, um, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm sure we're all going to have a lot to say, um, but uh, let's let's pass it over. I'll pass it over to John first. Um, Victoria 3, what is it and how do you feel about it? Just really quickly. Three words or less.
3: Victoria 3 is a game about looking at a chart and then finding a way to break the chart.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's, that's good. pretty. Yeah. Sometimes the chart actually breaks. Sometimes the the line go up so much that the line go off of your screen. It's my
3: favorite thing in so, this world. It's yeah.
0: <laughs> they said they want to fix it. And I'm like, I don't no, think I don't they fix it. I think they I think it's should, very they good. Should leave
1: that it's, I <laughs> could just see the uh, investors <laughs> jumping out windows. That's
3: uh, yeah, great. Yeah. I just love it when I like I'm like, and in 1910, I went to war and you see my nation's GDP go off the bottom of the screen. That's right. good. I like that. Wow.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's you got to you got to pay for, you know, those, those munitions and things like that. Or not in this um, case. It's, uh... <laughs> so I guess uh, in, in a less abstract sense, uh, Ian, how would you describe Victoria 3 to somebody who had like never played a Victoria game Ooh. before?
1: uh so yeah it's 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 the century you described eighteen thirty six to nineteen thirty six uh it's the economics and politics and uh social mobility of the entire century uh an attempt to model all of that at the same time and you're in charge of one country
0: and it and it's every single person which they're they're actually not joking this time right like, <laughs> it is it is actually modeling every person that is alive in some sense, um, which is, I think Victoria too, it was just the workers and it kind of abstracted out what they now call dependence. Um, Yeah. But uh, yeah, if I'm remembering correctly, how they, they got the numbers for that because it wasn't exactly one-to-one, but
4: right. Whereas, um, whereas this is actually the, preposterous hubris of a one-to-one demographic simulation of the 1800s
0: (laughs) (laughs) just just a little bit just a little bit of hubris as a treat um yeah uh so luke you're the one here who had not played victoria 2 right correct yes so never what what happens? Walk me through what happens when you open this game.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's it was really weird because when when I when I realized like hey I've never played a Victorian game I realized it's literally the only Paradox Grand Strategy series I'd never even like remotely dabbled in and so the only thing I was bringing in was this sort of expectation that it was going to be this sort of wildly different experience to so many of the other similar games and then I very quickly found out it's like. Mm. A lot of this stuff you know the focus is is in different places, but I'm really dragging up a lot of hearts of iron and Europa Universalis sort of crossover stuff here with my endless spreadsheet management and complaints about a cold and distant a i and <laughs> like, um <laughs> yeah i i don't know if if you haven't read my review, my review's not quite as glowing as a lot of other people's were um yeah. Not because I think it's
0: very fair though. Like, yeah I do think yeah.
2: I think it does reflect that I'm not sort of a long time fan of this series, so I haven't come in with this sort of pre-baked excitement for it. Um and yeah, I've sort of found that it's yeah, like I've already said, a lot of Paradox games, grand strategy games have this sort of bleed over where they sort of I know each one's focused on a different time period, but their, you know, their focuses and, and the way you play them sort of are Roughly similar to the others, and and I found that this was like that in ways that were worse. Like I, I like I said in my review, I really did not enjoy the the endless economic management, but in also ways that I found were absolutely mind-blowingly incredible. Which is the the social malleability and and the sort of political modeling stuff.
0: Yeah, it's like I read every single dev diary for this game before it came out, yeah. and. I didn't know me what too. the hell I was doing.
2: <laughs> Which makes me feel so he, he, much better. Yeah. It
0: took
1: me like, like five campaigns to get into it. Is, it's a kind of a surprise. Cause I find that like, yeah. when, when you get into it, I, I was doing a lot more building all the time than I thought was going to be happening, I guess, based on having poured over all those dev diaries.
3: I think that reading right. the dev diaries for this, I didn't read them. I'm not like that in this moment, but I, uh, <laughs> I feel like reading the dev diaries for this was like reading the manual for a piece of machinery that you've never seen. You're like, OK, yeah, or I know what an industrial printing press does in theory. I'm going to read the manual for it and also not be in person with it. Like yeah. some immensely complicated thing that you can't even vaguely understand from a description. Yeah, That's I a think really the-
4: good
1: way to describe it, I think.
4: It is right. I mean, the. The, the big design decision here, right, is that you build all of your factories yourself. Uh, and and the, the finances are kind of abstracted away, but you're actually choosing each individual factory, which was not how Victoria 2 ran, right? You had that incredibly stupid capitalist AI, which would do much of that <laughs> for you. It would just make all sorts of terrible decisions. Um, but it throw really does. Say again?
3: It would throw darts at the economic dartboard, right?
4: Oh yeah, and just terrible aim. Uh but here you you make all the you make all the decisions and so um you are you are hitting a lot more buttons in that regard.
0: Yeah, it's it's weird. I think we I described it at one point as like you you're the you're the spirit of a nation similar to EU4, but you're also at the same time you're playing as the forces of capital <laughs> within your nation because you have the they have this thing called the investment pool now that aristocrats and eventually like capitalists can pay into that will pay for building certain things. And that sort of represents private investment. But yeah. you're still building everything yourself. And it's,
3: I, I actually um, think it's quite nice in terms of a game design conceit to avoid having to simulate an entire public economy and an entire private economy somehow. It's a very functional right. piece of game design decision.
0: And then there's the, the other really well before we get into like the super, super weeds, um, I just want to cover for anybody who doesn't know what the hell we're talking about. So so basically what you're doing in Victoria 3, like what are the actual actions you're taking? You're playing as a country. You have all these simulated people. They want different things. They joined interest groups that want different things you're figuring out which of these interest groups can further your goals, which ones you're going to have to work against. Like if you want democracy, the aristocracy isn't going to like that. So you have to figure out a weaken in them by like getting the peasants off the farms and into factories. But now you have, you know, guys in top hats who want children to work in the mines. And that's not great either. Um, and then you're, you know, you're building up industries, you're deciding what to invest in, you're trading with other countries. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's really when I'm playing a game of Victoria three, the two things that I'm primarily thinking of is what is my next economic goal and what is my next political goal um, as far as passing laws and and, you know, building resource industries more or less. Um, but yeah, so. The interesting thing about Victoria, two was it was sort of more of a strict economic simulation in some ways because they actually tracked every individual good in Victoria three goods don't actually exist. They're abstracted with the system of like buy and sell orders where like, you know, if there's, if there's a shortage of grain, I don't know. They're still getting black market grain somewhere. Like it's, there's, I really
3: have to say that, uh, (laughs) We say hubris when we talk about simulating every human on the planet, but the mere concept that Victoria two thought it could simulate every good on the planet is far Uh more bonkers.
0: Right. Right. So there's like, there's base prices and there's like maximum and minimum prices so that when you would do something in Victoria two, where you didn't understand what you were doing and the entire global economy would just fall over like a Jenga tower and then that's that save is is over uh, now. There's like mechanics to catch that Jenga tower and make it eventually kind of wobble back into place. Yeah, there's no playing um,
3: as China and just not <laughs> spending money for 10 years and having your nation accumulate yeah. literally all the money in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <Right.
0: laughs> Um, Which I think was a really smart decision overall, because it, it it seems like it works a lot more like a real economy. So,
3: yeah, people, um, people find a way they make stuff, right? Like they make stuff in their basement, yeah. they make stuff in the bathroom. They
0: will right. and build engines in, their, in
3: the garage if they have to.
0: They'll go out in their front yard and eat grass like it's it'll be OK. The mortality Hell, rate will go I'm up eating grass right now. It's really expensive.
4: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, um and that's just you know gesturing back at at Vicky 2, right? That's a replacement for Vicky 2's system of of artisans where you'd have a a sort of low level of organic production of everything. Um and and here yeah, they I think it's I think it's a smarter move. And I also have to imagine that there was some optimization decisions happening here. Right. Um
0: Yeah, there is like there there are subsistence farms that will like produce like enough food for the people living on them and like basic furniture and stuff like that um but it is interesting that they don't they don't really have an artisan class there's that merchant um what's it called where the the business is run by merchant guilds i think yeah. which just yeah sets up like shopkeepers are the artisans and they're telling laborers to make chairs. Yeah. It's, it's in there. Like it's, it's just abstracted differently. You you have that, uh,
1: that, that that commodity that's not tradable called services that is generated by urban centers too, that I think kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a lot of what happens in your, I mean, obviously it's in your urban centers, but it's not tradable and it's kind of that ambient amount of whatever services are in that state. So.
3: Yeah, I feel like, right. I like
1: some of that stuff.
3: I need to have someone assemble the wood that I've purchased into a chair or I'm going to buy fabric and take it to a tailor, which was the way a lot of things were done historically, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, right. And so then oh, go ahead. I, I
1: mean, it's just basically measuring your, you know, the, the size of a city means that there's more capacity for creating those things. I guess that's how I thought of. What services were as I was playing.
3: Yeah, I I agree with you, and it's cool that more modern versions of similar goods show up over time, such as uh, things like electricity and um, transportation. I, I like one of the yeah, things I could... really think is cool about this game is that as the market expands, the market needs to expand to f- feed the needs of the expanding market. Right, yeah. like right. <laughs> it it very accurately gives us the sort of explosive growth of the like second industrial revolution as new scientific processes for these established industrial things are invented over time. I I, I have a lot of fun watching that.
1: A new way, a new method for producing steel means that you have new input demands and those are secondary goods that are produced someplace. You know, it's a more efficient way to produce steel, but all of a sudden your costs have changed and you need to expand your production base to be able to. Uh, account to produce or or not just your production base that's not your only option you can also also trade for these you know new input materials that you need uh but yeah like everything you you need to grow and then to grow sustain, to sustain that growth you need to grow more it's yeah
4: well and the other thing that's that's pushing it right is the way that uh that influences standard of living which influences radicalism right if you're relying on a on that sort of the Prussian bargain, rising standard of living, please don't tip over into revolution. It needs to be rising. A stagnant high standard of living does you no good. Um, it's, all about, it's all about relative movement. People get used to the goods that they have. And so that creates this, this eternal demand for expansion. Things need to get more, they need to get cheaper. Uh, there, is no, there is no top.
0: Right, <clears throat> which was kind of one of the things I was skeptical about when they first outlined the design for Victoria 3 was that that consciousness stat from Victoria 2 was gone, but it's it's kind of still there, but it's almost like it's a much more strict dialectical materialist interpretation of consciousness, because as people get more educated and as they learn about Ideas like egalitarianism and socialism, which are actually technologies that can spread to your country, whether you like it or not, their expected standard of living goes up. And even if it's go trending up overall, if it's below expected expectations for any amount of time, they start to get mad at you. Um, so it really is kind of a, you know, um, people if you're if you're providing for their needs, they don't really care if you're running an authoritarian police state. Technically, like some of the interest groups might not love it. Um, the trade unions probably won't love it. But. Um, most people will be pretty happy as long as you're giving them cool stuff and it's affordable.
4: Yeah. And and on the on the flip side, you can have a situation where your standard of living was you know, nationally was 28 and has now dropped to 24, which is to say it's gone from preposterously high to merely absurdly affluent, <laughs> and you will have riots in the streets, right? Uh, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. gas prices protests, I guess, you know, and and that's, yeah, that, that tracks with yeah, how does, societies yeah. work.
0: <laughs> right, right. Um, so... I'm curious, uh, Luke, when you first started trying to figure this game out, what sort of, like, campaign did you try? What countries did you
2: play? Well, I I made a very poor decision initially and followed uh, Paradox's advice and picked Sweden, um, which was an enormous mistake on my part. Um, (laughs) I actually went through a number of campaigns till I found that Belgium was actually by far the best place for me to get my feet under the table because... Some of the other recommendations were just a bit too. Uh, how do I put it? This is a bit too much. There was a bit too much going on for me to be learning how to play this game and be successfully managing the country that I'm trying to to run. So Belgium was finally where I found my sweet spot, where it was very small, but it was also reasonably industrialized and and had a certain levels of education and and in prosperity and stuff. So it was more Belgium was more about tweaking the numbers and actually like me being an idiot and trying to start his career in Japan and finding that that was (laughs) maybe 10 campaigns too early for me to be trying to pull Japan out of the shogunate era when I didn't even know how to trade or adjust my uh, ops and political sort of positioning that easily.
3: Yeah, I'm with you. I think Belgium is one of the best starting countries. That was my first.
2: Yeah, I think the the economic stuff is so overwhelming initially. Yeah, Um, and just having two states, right? Yeah. Two places right to, build next to each other. One or the other. Very That's small. it, Don't
3: worry
2: about it. Yep. 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 So, coming into this game, you sort of, I, I didn't read any of the developer diaries or, or pre release stuff either, um, mainly because a lot of it referenced Victoria 2, which I had no understanding of. But you sort of come into this game expecting it has these pillars that you're going to be sort of dividing your time between, like, okay, I'm going to be doing economic stuff. I'm going to be doing political stuff. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be fighting wars you find out about 27 seconds in the game, you're going to be spending 90% of your time on economic stuff. And so the way the way Belgium was structured sort of made that a lot easier to get a handle on than, you know, some of the larger nations or less, you know, developed, less industrially developed nations that I'd, I'd tried elsewhere.
3: Yeah, it, it is certainly. So much of the game is a an economic simulator, and starting as a more developed nation helps you get to grips with that quickly and understand what matters. And also I think figure to help me at least figure out how the political system actually relates to what's going on in the economics, instead of just struggling to even begin to modernize a really, uh, outdate, quote outdated economy like Korea or Japan.
2: Yeah. Especially since I'm sure this will get fixed, you know, or improve later on, or I hope it is anyway, but I found the tutorial to be, extremely limited in some instances and broken in others um yeah some of the game modes Sometimes
0: it just breaks some
2: some of the game modes and some of the nations that they recommend you play as a tutorial just decide to stop giving you tutorial information and i think belgium was maybe my fourth or fifth sort of go at the game and it was the first one where i got that initial screen where it says hello victoria 3 works like this (laughs) you know you need to put woods in and then you get politics out and sort of this really base level explanation of how the entire game works. I hadn't been given that playing as Sweden or other nations. And so um, that is all sort of also accounted for a lot of my struggles where not only was I going in blind, but I was was going in blind and there was nobody helping me through these massively overwhelming early stages of the game. Um, Even given my sort of very long-term experience with Paradox's games, I was still, I still had no idea what I was doing until the Belgium campaign suddenly triggered all these tutorials that were like, Oh, okay. Well, now that makes sense because they have explained it to me in this tutorial.
1: Now, this is the first time I think like this is a good place to mention that this is kind of a new approach to tutorializing one of these games where it's completely portable and it works in theory with any nation. Um, I don't think they've done that before. Um, so it just it's basically journal entries that pop up for each you know phase of the tutorial and they made some really smart decisions with with that it just yeah it, it it's it's still kind of wobbly right yeah, now. yeah
2: like it works for certain nations at certain points in their developmental cycle of a certain size but if you're trying to play as japan the tutorial just breaks instantly no yeah, that's one of the first things that tells you is special case it's like hey having trouble with your resources why not trade for them and like my brother I am playing as Japan in 1836. Yeah. I can't <laughs> trade with anybody. <laughs> literally you know? not an option. It's literally yeah. the the defining like, feature. Yeah.
0: Right. Um, yeah, it's there's also some like there's the egalitarian society one, which so there's like beyond the tutorial, there are like goals you can set for your nation at the beginning of a campaign. One of them is like, I just want to build an egalitarian society, and it actually breaks and becomes impossible to complete if you give your people too much religious freedom too early. Um, <laughs> and that's been in since like the preview build I played in August that, that particular cork has. So yeah, uh, I hope they get those ironed. There's out. a lot
3: of script based uh, stuff that breaks at various points yeah, or mission based yeah, if- stuff, which has always been my major critique of the mission, these decision trees and mission systems in the paradox games is that they're they both limit what the player is allowed to do and have a high propensity of breaking things when they get outdated or go wrong. And it, it's happened with the launch of first CK3 and now this where a ton of things like tutorial uh, tutorialization and events and stuff just doesn't work very well simply because it's it was designed, you know, and written nine months ago and they've changed the game significantly since then and launch and forgotten to update it all.
2: Especially yeah, since some of, them, some of them are broken like almost by design yeah. where you're given a goal and it's like, okay, I have a clear single goal I need to meet. And then the game will tell you, oh, this goal is economic based. Well, like we don't know how you can get there. Maybe you can do one of these six things. <laughs> so like Maybe one of them will work. <laughs> we don't know. It's like, oh, come on, man. It's a single goal you're trying to get me to meet here, and you can't even help me. Like, how am I supposed to beat this if you, the tutorial, cannot even give me like, some half decent advice on how to get past this point
4: yeah i ran. it's I, sorry i ran into a I no, oh no i ran into a similar yeah. issue with the with the economic gold chain uh where by the time they gave me the objective of getting the prices of iron steel and coal they're like you should get these prices to be really low and i'm like I have a 1 billion pound economy shifting the price of coal down 25% is not happening. There is not enough coal on planet earth at this point. Like well, why can't I, I just had
1: that exact same? Yeah. Wh- I had that exact same block.
4: Yeah. yeah. Why can't yeah, I skip this there's, step?
0: <laughs> there's times when that might not be a good idea. Like if you're, if you're like a coal exporting country, you might not want the price of coal to get too low. Right. Um, because it also affects, you know, the dividends and the wages uh, that get paid out to your workers. Uh, We were actually having this debate a a little bit on the discord, and and I'm curious to find out what like the real number crunchers in the paradox community end up determining is like the meta, because I was saying I I usually stop building stuff once the price gets down to about 25% below base. Uh, Because I'm afraid that I'm just going to run my workers out of a job if if I reduce the profitability of the buildings too much, uh, which can have an impact on your standard of living. Um, But then there might be stuff where have you
3: considered welfare?
0: Yeah. Welfare is a trap. Let me explain to you right now. (laughs) (laughs) There's some major problems Uh, with welfare. currently. Not if you're
3: building socialism in one nation, my friend
0: that's true if you're a fortress like ethno state you can do it um but if you have if you have open borders uh your borders are only open or closed there's like no immigration quotas and people will say oh well i mean you can discriminate who you let in if you're racist based on culture only open or closed closed
3: and
1: super racist those are the options
0: that's what (laughs) i ended up doing as japan it's not just uh, super
3: racist there's also um Religious discrimination. Oh, right. So yeah. you can that, be like, you're going to be they're not Christian kind of enough to enter. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah, but, but here's there what: there are happened. two ways to be
3: a bigot in this video game.
0: If you have open borders and multiculturalism and freedom of conscience, or or separation of sure. church and state, and the trade unions are saying, "Hey, we want welfare," you're just gonna have to gun them down in the streets. Because let me tell you what'll happen: everyone will say, "Oh." Standard of living in this country is really high. They're going to move there. They're going to get on welfare. They're going to start draining your economy and you will literally not be able to build buildings fast enough to give them all jobs. And I've Uh, had that death spiral happen to me more than I will. uh, I'll
3: send you my United Syndicates of America (laughs) game and you can wonder gloriously as I have collected a vast proportion of the world population and put them to work in my factories.
0: Okay. Well, my
3: solution when a shit ton of people immigrated for a better standard of living was the classic American solution, which is to um, put them on boats and use them to invade other
4: countries.
0: (laughs) Ah, there you go. Okay. All right.
4: I had a similar, similar experience with a, with a run as Spain. Uh, I think I'm over a hundred million people in the 19 teens, uh, mostly immigration based, but, Uh, I have had to do some serious imperialism to get enough raw materials to keep the factories to keep standard of living up to, to pay for my, my glorious welfare state. My, you know, it's, 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 uh, I think it's a less glorious welfare state for the people on the wrong end of, of, of the bayonets.
3: Look, all I'm saying (laughs) is that, yes, we did invade all those decentralized nations and take their territory by force, but, but... Their standard of living has tripled, so you know who's really in the wrong. <laughs> well,
4: no, I mean, in, in in this game, let me tell you, the worst thing that can happen to your country is for someone to find oil on it. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. At least when
4: Brent's at the wheel.
0: <laughs> oh man, we gotta get we gotta get some multiplayer going sometime. Um, which, by the way, you can finish a campaign fairly quickly i think it's about 20 20 to 25 hours depending on how much time you just spend on speed 5 cruising through to uh wait for laws to pass um yeah so i think it's got good multiplayer potential just because it's not going to take nearly as long as u4 or ck or even stellaris would but um yeah so We've talked a little bit about how buggy it is, uh, which I think was my main criticism. I think it was a lot of people's main criticism. Um, This is this is not a pristine launch as much as I'm enjoying it. There's there's still some wacky stuff going on, Um, particularly if I'm not playing in North America. It just turns into, (laughs) you know, the Twilight Zone. Every time I look at it, I'm like, I don't know what's going on over there. I'm not going to think about it too hard. The civil,
3: um, the American civil war is just broken right now.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: the, I guess yeah. the way like, like
1: a
3: known issue, I think uh, in that post they put political up power works. Yeah. But I do, I do yeah. laugh my ass off every time I look over there and I'm like, yeah, that's the Confederate States of America right there. Yeah. It's, uh, it's- New York, Massachusetts. <laughs>
0: yeah. All of the, all of the, the, uh, Anglo Americans will just flee The South, because the standard of living is low because of turmoil, but slaves can't move. So you'll just have states that are 100% slaves with no one else in them. And then they break away and form New Africa, which has three non-contiguous states (laughs) just along the Gulf of Mexico. It's yeah, there's there's some weird stuff going on.
4: And yet Um, and yet I would say that somehow this game is still less broken than Victoria 2 was at any stage in its development.
0: That's probably true. You know, that is probably still true. Um, uh, Yeah, it's I would say that it's still very playable and very fun for me. Um, But if you're expecting something like CK three, which I think felt pretty refined at launch, or at least I thought it did. uh, This is not exactly that. Uh, So just a little just a little uh, little disclaimer there. Um, It's pretty, though. I don't know. It's real pretty. It is very pretty.
1: It's yeah. very pretty.
3: It's um, so pretty. I just like to zoom in and look at the little <laughs> trains chugging along. And obviously I'm a complete sucker as soon as there's a tall ship and you can see a tall oh, ship. Oh, yeah. So. yeah. Yeah.
0: No, just watching your society grow from like this rural peasant economy to like having skyscrapers and trains and electric lighting is one of the best parts, I think, of, of this game. Um so, Brett, you have written fairly extensively on sort of the historical um, assumptions of Victoria 2 and now have written also fairly extensively on the historical assumptions of Victoria 3. Uh, as somebody who who studies history and teaches history, what are like the main things that you think Victoria 3 does better? And are there any ways in which it's worse?
4: So I think the, the, the biggest thing that I would say that it does better is its treatment of people not in the, what I refer to as the European state system, which includes a lot of the, you know, white colonies and dominions of Europe as well. Um, you know, Victoria too had some really awkward phrasings and framings with civilized and uncivilized nations. And it had the problem that, um, that the Europe Universalis series shares, where places that weren't governed by a state are just empty on the map. You can just you can just colonize those, right? There's nobody there in, in any way that the game really reflects. I mean, there might be a a population statistic for that territory, but it doesn't feel like there's anyone there. Um, Victoria 3 overhauls that. Um, countries are now. Centralized or decentralized, and then uh, recognized or unrecognized. So recognized countries are in the European state system, unrecognized countries aren't, which I think better reflects the, the, the diplomatic difference, right? In this period, the great powers of Europe really did interact with each other differently than they interacted with countries outside of that state system that they saw as less legitimate. And so you do need to represent that. That was a thing um right
3: and i think one of the best examples of this is uh things like britain's relationship with countries like china and russia where like you end up importing as a nation like britain or france you end up importing a lot of raw materials from russia but they have the ability to sort of cut you off and and use the same economic tools back against you whereas if if king the uh if if the
4: Qing dynasty yeah
3: Yes, um, if the Qing Dynasty does it, you are you, you go to war with them, right? Like you don't have to respect their needs.
4: Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And- and I mean, and I mean that that is, of course, a thing Britain legit did in 1839 and then again in 1856, right? Those are the two opium wars where the Qing dynasty is like, please do not import your narcotics that are poisoning our people. And Britain was like, no, I think we're going to keep doing that. And actually, I'm going to burn your capital and wreck your canals and just generally trash the place until you let me. Also, I'd like this island and that island and this concession.
0: Yeah, and there are those like little new ways that you can sort of economically gain a leg up without, you know, you don't have to administer an entire province of China. You can just take one little port and then they suddenly can't embargo you for as long as that port exists. Um, and uh, they've sort of replaced the sphere system from Victoria, too, with like these these national markets where you can bring people into your market. Um, the one interesting thing is, that I've noticed is that prestige is not nearly as important mm-hmm. as it was in Victoria Two because it used to determine like the pecking order of who got to buy stuff <laughs> on the global market, and now it's like it can give you some more declared interests. It can expand possibilities of who you can trade with or where you can. Yeah, like I think you get better
1: interest but, rates on uh, credit, but yeah, there's not a whole lot.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. So, like, as Japan, I got to the highest possible rank I could be with still being an unrecognized power. And I was like, I'm good. I don't know why we need to fight Russia just to say that we're cool. Like, I didn't really see a strong incentive to become recognized once you have the biggest economy and the highest standard of living.
3: It's the diplomatic options. Really, really? and other nations recognize you a little bit better. Like smaller nations around will recognize that you are recognized, if that makes sense. Um, Mm, And opening up, you get you get some free declared interests and things, so you can better protect your economic needs around the globe.
4: It also alters infamy costs. Beating up on an unrecognized power is 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 cheap in infamy, whereas it's a recognized power. You know, the same province would be much more expensive, which. Is frankly a good reflection of the way that the European state system thought about these sorts of countries. You know,
3: yeah. If you if you roll into South China and take a treaty port at the point of a gun, uh, the U.S. is going to be like bully for you. But if you roll into France and do it, they're going to be mad and start a war.
4: Right. I mean, like seize the entire Congo, and everybody's like thumbs up. Belgium um, seize Alsace <laughs> Lorraine, and right, it's the Hun and his war crimes. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that was a, that was a very much a double standard at play in this, in this period. And I think recognized versus unrecognized is a good way for the game to signal like this isn't based on any real material reality. This is based on the perception of the great powers in the moment. And so, yeah, if you're Japan and you've developed a large enough military that you don't need recognition, then you don't need it um F those guys uh you know um i think that's a i think that's a, a real improvement and then because I, I don't want it to slip pot slip by um i just love the heck out of decentralized powers um the decision to now take non-state peoples uh, of various kinds and we're going to put them on the map they're going to get their area of the world shaded they have a country Um, I think it really it really impresses the sort of the idea that, you know, colonial expansion was still you're still encroaching on somebody else's land and stealing their stuff and they might fight you and then you're conquering them because that's what you're doing. Um, And I think that that's a real improvement for the way that the game reflects what something like the scramble for Africa was.
0: Right. I think it's a little bit odd right now how it ends up playing out sometimes where you're colonizing basically over the top of land that used to be owned by a decentralized power. And then there's this tension mechanic that determines when they're just going to get sick of that and declare war on you. But usually it seems like you want that to happen because if you win the war, you just take everything, which to me kind of felt like. I don't know that like that kind of feels too easy. Like maybe I could take some extra land and not have to use a colonist on it. But the fact that I was like trying to antagonism antagonize them so that they would fight me so that I could just win the war. I mean, it's pretty much automatic if you're playing as a major power and you're able to get your forces there. Um, And then. It's like, OK, I just got all of these free colonies that would have taken me years and years and years to actually set up, um, you know, compared to in real life. Like the Apache Wars went on for like a century yeah, or something like that. It was really long. Uh, so that's still an area that I think could could see improvement.
4: Yeah. You do you do eat an infamy penalty with that outcome uh, because the war goal you're forced to adopt In that war has an infamy cost, uh, presumably reflective of, you know, um, your brutalizing of the natives is now on the front pages, and so all of the proper folks of Europe have gasped. Um, They're not going to do anything about it, but they've (laughs) gasped.
0: No,
3: of course, fell Um, out of
4: eyes. I I agree with you.
3: Yeah, right into the teacup. (laughs) Sort of splashes everywhere. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's there's also some stuff that, um you know, I, th- I feel like needs a little bit more pushback. I think in a lot of areas, this game does a good job of pushing back on you, you know, in terms of like the interest groups will kind of rally against you and potentially start a civil war. If you try to, like, liberalize too quickly or if you try to abolish serfdom right away in a country with powerful aristocrats. Um, But then, you know, there's stuff like uh you can pass multiculturalism in the United States in like, you know, the eighteen eighteen fifties, 1850s, maybe even 1840s when like I would say that what that law represents in in Victoria three terms probably didn't happen in the U.S. until the 1960s right. at yep. the earliest. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Um. So so like there are some areas where I'm like, mm, probably shouldn't be able to do that that easily. Not at least not without starting a shooting war over it Um and even abolishing slavery. Currently, I think it's this specific patch that came out right before launch kind of broke that where you can kind of sneak it, it in. It seems there. like it can happen like right
1: at the beginning <laughs> before like any right, of the interest right groups away. have enough like clout or. Or anything to, to push back yeah, meaningfully. Like, they yeah. will complain, but that's about all they're capable of doing before. You know, in the 1840s, it's still, you know, pretty sparsely populated. So, I think that's probably what it is. It's like some, you know, right. it's, it's two variables that need tuning.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, found it, I found it weird in, in, in my games. And I haven't, I haven't played the United States, but um, in my games... I found that I got a lot more reactionary pushback over no migration controls than I did over multiculturalism, and I'm like, I feel like that should be reversed. Um, That you know, the rural folks should be super mad that I'm letting other people have rights, not that I'm letting them work in my factories. Um, Just looking at just looking at the way that historical polities developed, that you know, obviously the United States encouraged a lot of immigration. Long before it decided to extend equal rights to everybody that immigrated, and so um I do think that there's some refinement that maybe could happen. Yeah, like there. I
1: mean it's I mean, they flagged this as a known issue, and it is easy to abolish slavery in the United States right now, but thirty years later, when I tried to ban child labor, uh, all of New England was ready to secede yep. and put my head <laughs> on a stick. so yeah,
0: yep. Same thing happened to me. And I lost that. I lost that civil war, um, which, uh, yeah, it happened about the right time. It was just yeah. not over slavery. It was. It was so I think hard. I bailed and
1: lowered taxes, you know, children <laughs> checking out
0: on the assembly line. Yeah. Uh huh. So. I think that's
3: really interesting. I've heard this story a lot with the U S and I think I had an exceptional run as the USA where the sort of random number generators spit out stuff in my favor. And I, I think there's not, quite as much of it and i hope that it's something they'll go into over time but the the character of events is very strong in this and they can have really major effects i think the politics system in victoria 3 is the thing that the game designers should be proudest of and the most interesting and innovative piece of of mechanical tech in this right which is just having to look at the different interest groups and balance what they do and don't want in order to figure out what reforms or changes you can and cannot make, and then figure out which of them get you to where you want to be. I think that's really cool. And the way that interest group uh, opinions can change over time, right, is awesome. And I love that, like, if if pretty, you know, if fairly early on someone who's more of a populist and a uh, a progressive, or a or a liberal gets put in charge of one of these smaller parties or one of these slightly less radical parties like the armed forces or the rural folk. You can get these cool shifts where you're able to make huge changes all at once because of the actions of sort of a handful of people radicalizing or changing the priorities of a group. Um, that is such a fascinating event, and I had a, a superb example of in. Um, <laughs> In my game as the United States, where uh, John C. Calhoun beat the president to death on the steps of the Capitol building with a cane (laughs) for insulting the institution of slavery as disgusting, right? Like I had a had an intelligentsia president, and he beat the president to death, and that's so. And the president was really popular, and so that that event so thoroughly damaged the public's opinion of. The the southern planters, rural landholders. I don't remember what they're called in the U.S. Southern planters. Southern yeah. Planters, so yeah. thoroughly damaged that political party's opinion in the eyes yeah. of the public during a sort of key election that it flipped the government, essentially. And I was able to pass a landslide of reforms and begin pushing towards sort of early, early socialism, because that was my goal with that U.S. playthrough. And I think that that was pretty delightful, honestly. Like the seeing the way in which the opinions of specific and the people agency can change of those, things the imp- sort of you very mentioned these two genetically
1: That's where, like, I think through most of the game, I kind of felt uh, like at this uncomfortable arm's length from anybody, and except for like my generals, I could kind of get a sense of who they were. Um, and it's when these kinds of events happen, and uh, like an individual person takes con- like leadership of an interest group, or which is those wind up forming your political parties and seeing the impact they have. That's where all of a sudden, okay, this is about people again. Um, I really, yeah, I I just, all that to say that I agree with you. I think it's just a brilliant system. And I kind of wish that it was a little bit more in the foreground um, because I think it gets lost a little bit easily. Uh, But yeah, I, I, it's, it's really cool to see the way that, like you described, a single person can change the fates of an interest group and then the politics of a nation.
4: Yeah, I'd love to see more interest groups. I, particularly, it, it feels to me like the, the political mix is missing interest groups that are simply formed around a discriminated minority and that sort of serve as their voice um you know i'm thinking thinking i agree yeah especially in the later multicultural
2: games as well where you start getting these large waves of immigrants as well they seem to go massively underrepresented
3: Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah they sort of just suddenly slot into where they fit in the new country right which to a certain extent is true in in nations like the united states where you had the sort of early democratic party uh and then the mid To late centuries, sort of the Civil War era, Republican Party just like a recruiting machine, getting Irish immigrants like right off the boat, being like, "Hey, guess what? You're going to get to vote, and when you vote, you're going to vote for us because I just gave you this chicken." Um, (laughs) right? Like, that's those sorts of goals were really effective, and that was a major thing. But the U.S. was not the rule, right? In the way that immigration, I think, worked at the time. I would love to see interest groups be able to splinter, though. I think that. Would be a, a, oh, yeah. a very fascinating evolution of this system over time, just uh in the well, same way that priorities shift and political parties form and dissolve over time, which I love in this game yeah.
0: well, there's so much more they could do with like you know interest groups that get that are like mad enough for long enough might like develop a mil- a paramilitary. Mm-hmm there's like some events that are kind of based around clashes between supporters of different interests in the streets but i could see them systematizing that a lot more
3: yeah um, and they can they can majorly shift but yeah it's all sort of event driven right it's not yeah. it's triggered by stuff like if you form a communist nation and hold it communist for long enough eventually your sort of relatively conservative armed forces will flip to become like a red army nationalist right. uh Proletarian movement, rather than a sort of like reactionary um, conservative movement.
4: The fun part is I had that happen in Social Democracy Spain, uh, which <laughs> that created that created. I, I ended up with uh, because in that game I was not I was not planning to go communist. Uh, I ended up with a sort of two sided cordon sanitaire where the industrialists intelligentsia and the and the trade unions were the coalition in government walling out the communists on one side and the phalangists on the other and i was like okay
0: <laughs> yeah the late game can get pretty wild like if you think you're just gonna go for social democracy there will be people who are like no not far enough we got to keep going and then there will um, people
3: be like oh too too far, too too far too far, too too far. back up i yeah, i love I mean, it like i um I had my sort of communist USA game I was playing and in the late game, a little, a little, I think probably around 1900, I ended up passing proper freedom of speech. Right. And protecting speech. And um, I didn't get rid of the secret (laughs) police, though. That would be fucked up. Just wouldn't be communism without secret. police. Anyways,
0: I mean, sometimes it's the only way to suppress the landholders. You just got to tell them we're going to pass this constitution or I'm going to kill your whole family. Like they'll listen to that.
3: They do. Uh, they're good at listening to that, in fact. But I had this sort of delightful thing where I was like, "Let's have a little, a little free speech as a treat," and immediately we got fascists. <laughs> right? Like the next election, a fascist party took ten percent of you, the electorate, and I was like, you, "God damn yeah. it!" You,
0: you, you, you opened up parlor, and you know that's just what happens. You know, it's it's the it's the always sunny episode. You try to make the most American bar in America, and yeah, there I found it was. Out. Yeah. Well,
4: and what I do. Yeah. I was gonna say what's also really what I like about the politics system is that it's and they could perhaps be a little bit better at explaining this to the player, but it's interwoven with the economic system. The interest groups Mm -hmm. that pops tend to fall in have a lot to do with their position in society, and your landholders and rural folk tend to be your arch conservative change nothings. So as you industrialize and change the structure of your, your country, you're going to change the makeup of your pops and their wealth, which changes your political system. Like If you want to hit the gas towards a sort of um, uh, uh, liberal in both the economic and political sense state, uh, do public ownership of companies. Because you'll have buckets of intellectuals and capitalists with ownership shares that will vote for the things you want. Um, now, if you then want to like have labor laws, good luck with that. Um, because you now have entrenched industrialists that will fight you. Um, and, right. and so the, I think the game does, does a really interesting job of, of simulating that the political change is connected to the economic change. They feed back into each other.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and it's also like the percentage of a pop that is politically active at all. Because at the beginning, most of the poor people are just sitting out like they don't care. They don't have any power and they don't really
3: if they do care, there's nothing they they can do about it.
0: Right. Yeah. It's based on their education level, which also has an effect on like what jobs they can eventually promote to. Because eventually, even if you're trying to run like a totalitarian, you know, monarchy, you need engineers and you're not going to have any engineers if you don't make schools, because that's where people go to learn to be engineers. Um, but then that'll make them more politically active. And, uh, you know, if they're, if they're radicals, they're also more likely to become politically active. And, um, yeah. It, like it, it all ties together in all these interesting ways. It all comes back to that. Uh, like, you can actually that
1: give... mobility is uh, tied to the yeah. market prices of the goods that they need for that, you know, whether it, they're at the, you know, the lower middle or upper strata, they have different, you know, uh, needs for different goods. So like ultimately everything does wind up, uh, being tied together in that, uh, in the marketplace. So you can like, oftentimes yeah. there'll be, you know, some problem and it's, you know, I I can't get enough people, uh, pr- you know, promoted into clerk positions or engineer positions or, or these, uh, more specialized, uh, uh, like I've got too many of my people are peasants who are not involved in politics whatsoever. And yeah, it's because, you know, they don't, they can't afford the things that they need to be able to, it's not just education, but their day-to-day material, uh, well-being so yeah Yeah. amazing
0: you can also do real communism (laughs) which you couldn't really do in victoria 2 victoria 2 had sort of this assumption that like as economic freedom goes up political freedom goes down and that was the trade-off you were always navigating it's like it's a, it's a, it's a linear continuum from Ayn Rand to Joseph Stalin. <laughs> um, you know, and Victoria three has this, you know, you can, you can implement a council Republic that's dip, like uh democratic where, you know, everybody, the proceeds of the factory, instead of going to a small number of owners, which would otherwise be shopkeepers or generally capitalist pops, um, those jobs just go away and the people working at the factories split the proceeds, uh, which makes standard of living go Zoom, um, <laughs> which is which is fun to watch. I do think there needs to be more diplomatic mechanics tied to that, um, because I think, you know, I, I at least in my in my understanding of history, one of the reasons that that has never happened is that those ideas tend to spread across borders and leaders of nearby countries don't want that to happen. Um, Uh, So they they tend to clamp down on any sort of experiment like that. Uh, If you look at the Paris Commune as an example that from this time period. um, And currently they don't really care. You can go like full anarchism and uh, as like, you know, Switzerland or Belgium and France just be like, yeah, that's cool. Just don't, don't, don't start sending flyers over the border and we're all good. There's a little penalty, I think, if
1: you don't have ideologically similar governments, but it can be completely offset by
2: trade. Yeah, but it's not, yeah, yeah, it's, I think this was one of my biggest issues with the game was that, like, there's an extent to where you're responsible and and enjoying managing your own nation, like, that's fine, but the point of giving you the whole world to choose from and interact with is that it, it is not just a simulation of your nation, it's, it's, your place in the wider world and how the world's sort of evolving around you as mm-hmm. well. And I found the extremely limited ways that the world reacted to your decisions to be really disappointing. Like as the, ga- mm-hmm. the game was relying so much on how much I was getting out of the abstract sort of political humor almost of like, oh, well, I made this, <laughs> this agrario, this agrarian anarchist, you know, Canada or whatever. Like that's very funny to me, but. Like that's—it seemed to be relying too much on how much enjoyment I could drag out of that, and and sort of meaning and impact on that. Whereas, like I know we've been using a lot of real-world examples and sort of seeing how the game comes up short in terms of the US and stuff like that. But if you look at like the formation of the Soviet Union that sparks a decades long cold war where the entire planet is basically sort of saying, no, you guys can't do this, right. you know? And, exactly. and yet, yet this, this game's letting you do things even more radical than that with nations that are even more powerful. And everybody else just sort of seems to look up from the newspaper and go, mm, okay, whatever. And then just like live their and, lives. And, it's, and it's- not only that, but
3: like you can be best friends with the mega capitalist colonizing, uh, monarchist empire as the yeah. ultra radical vanguard state and, yeah. and
0: your pops don't care that's the weirdest right. thing is the people they in don't your country care are about like your yeah. Foreign yeah. policy they, at all
1: yeah, the like, like, thing yeah. i was missing very much was like an anti-war movement of any kind like that just never happens
2: yeah yeah or some right. some My kind f- of awareness that hey you're you're a significant outlier to an established sort of world order yeah. I was, I was, you know you are being, you are going to be heavily penalized for this by some kind of alliance or, you know, embargoes. Well, I think
0: which is U four already has the perfect solution to this, which is that if you're the first one to go revolutionary, it's like okay, you're Napoleon now. It's you versus everyone and i think that's how the first country to go communist in vicky 3 should be treated the same way like you're the you are the communist you are the big communism builder <laughs> or at least at relative communism. to
2: its at least relative to its scale like if you're right. playing if so you're playing everyone
0: hates you now congratulations yeah. that's that's how it should go well, yeah. And if you're is, playing
2: as an italian kingdom like the like that can be a curiosity but if you switch the british empire yeah. to some kind of like to to communism then that should sort of spark some kind of enormous world event or at least drastically change the the global diplomatic landscape and like the, the way that it just doesn't at all is is like super disappointing to me.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I I kind of assume just I mean looking at the game's design that the emphasis was on getting the economic simulation to work and war and diplomacy, they're gonna go back and do more later, that it's more foundational. But it's certainly, yeah, I mean, I, I was a little surprised um, when I took both Austria and Spain in a very politically liberal direction very early that no one cared, I mean, you know, famously, right, there is a wave uh, of, of sort of liberal revolutionary agitation um, across the, uh, the European continent in, in 1848, the springtime of nations, uh, which essentially ends when the monarchies of Europe stand shoulder to shoulder and crush it. Um, and then, of course, likewise, uh, the allies in World War One responded to the Russian Revolution by aggressively supporting the whites, in, uh, that is that is the anti-communist monarchist forces, uh, as distinct right. from the Reds, um, partially in the hopes that they would keep Russia in the war um, against Germany, and and partially... I was sort of fear that this that this would spread and so you know I I think you should see and and then on the flip side actually I mean I think just to sort of balance that out right uh, quite a bit of the propaganda for France and Britain in World War 1 was sort of we are the democracies standing together against the autocracies please ignore our good ally the tsar um Right. And of course, that was also the American line, right? This is Woodrow Wilson, who is terrible, by the way. Uh, Woodrow Wilson is the is war to make the world safe for democracy. Um, and so I really would like to see that ideological conflict that if you and all of your neighbors are traditional monarchies, and you start, you know, establishing a parliament and giving people rights, your neighbors should be upset with you. Uh, because- right. Because you're rocking the boat. Yeah. And what everybody knew was that the last time this happened, it was 1792 in France and it went badly for everybody. And so, you know, this is the Congress of Vienna world where the monarchies accept that everybody has a responsibility to crush revolution wherever it, you know, raises ugly head. And the English-speaking countries of the world are different, but otherwise. You know the boot needs to come down, and, and that sense, doesn't really come through the game. I really do hope that that's something that that they that they integrate more. I hope we get. I hope we get more geopolitics.
2: I, I hope we do too. But it's, I, I'm sort of torn between thinking: is this is this and warfare like elements of the game that just need to be fleshed out later, or is it simply just like is this the point of the game? Is this what the designers are trying to say? Is that the economic system so? heavily front loaded and it's so crucial to all the other aspects of the game that they're supposed to be limited because the whole point of the game is sort of the designer saying, hey, you know, economics trumps all. It's the, it's the lifeblood of all these other systems that you may think are important and may enjoy in other games. Nothing happens if you can't, you know, you can't go to war if you can't feed your soldiers. You can't invest in technology if, if nobody's educated enough or can't mm-hmm. afford to buy things or, or, you know, has nowhere to live or, or no furniture. And so, yeah, I'm sort of, I sort of wonder whether like, yeah, I, I sort of fear that maybe that's the point. Like we're supposed to be well elbows deep in the economic side of the game. because It does,
1: I mean, explicitly kind of treat warfare yeah. as a product of industry, right? Like it is produced by your economy and yeah.
2: But they all are like, even, even talking about the pop right. system before the whole political system, like everything in the game is, has its roots in the economic system, like everything that even the pops will hold true, or fight over, or disagree with you, or agree with over, is just based on how well fed they are, or how nice their clothes are, or how good their jobs are. And those are the things that you build and and modify economically. So, like it's yeah, it is very yeah. It,
3: it's uh, it's definitely one of those games where I think Luke is right here, which is that those systems are the most fleshed out because they're the core of the game. So mm-hmm. they're they're what got the attention, right? That. The decision i can't speak for the designers but it feels to me like the decision was definitely made that the interior life of the country you're building is the core of the game and therefore that's what's getting the most attention in this game as both time and mechanics for this release but i also think it's key to to point out that luke is super correct about how much attention you can even pay to more things than are already going on in this game
0: Yeah, I mean, so my my ray of hope is that, you know, Martin Anward is the game director on this, and he basically turned Stellaris into a completely different game (laughs) (laughs) a, a year and a half or something. So, you know, I would hope he would be open minded towards, you know, those kind of like revolutionary changes that we saw a lot in older paradox game. Well, I guess the the middle era of paradox games uh, with EU four where it would just you look look away for a year and it's a different game when you come back, um, which I would directly contrast to like Crusader Kings three, where, yeah, I mean it's different now than it was when it came out two years ago, but it's also kind of mostly the same, um, and I hope Victoria three does not go that route. I hope it does not have. Such a long, um, you know, evolutionary cycle that it it doesn't expand on all those things. Um, you know, we haven't even talked really about how warfare works, which has been hugely divisive. Uh, because yeah, there's there's no units that you move around on the map. That's a first for Paradox. Um, it's all based on fronts. It's very hands off. I believe I described it as feeling work in progress. Uh, in my review, so
4: I'm just gonna um, I'm just gonna hug the third rail and say that I like the warfare system. Yeah, same. I, I hope okay. they keep it. Um, in, in part because you know this isn't Hearts of Iron. This isn't a, a war. Like right. warfare is is in here, but it's not here. It's also, I think, I assume that this was what they were thinking: is they have the struggle of they need a system that can represent a war in 1840 and a war in 1930. And I think if you went the full Hearts of Iron system, one, that would be way too much micro for a game that already has a lot of that. But two, it would be, it would be ridiculous to try to represent the American Civil War that way. Um, on the flip side, right, Victoria Two had Europa Universalis' army system, almost verbatim. And attempting to represent World War I and the static fronts of the Western Front that way was also really silly it would just all of the armies would mass into a single province and you would just inexplicably have like 3 million men all fighting like outside of a specific uh you know suburb yeah. of Brussels um <laughs> which is not obviously how that how that works and i'm like the front system is abstract enough to capture warfare across this era and it also if you're the political leadership of your country it basically reflects your role. You're like, I've allocated the funds. I have, I, have, I have hopefully made sure I have industry. I have raised a bunch of troops. I have handed them to this aristocratic fellow who assures me he knows what he's doing. And now I am hoping for the best. Uh, and maybe this works out, or maybe he takes blunder three times in a row and we lose, um, you know, uh, war is too serious a matter to be left to generals. Um, and that I'm like, yeah, like if you're, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh you know, Lloyd George or, or or Clemenceau or 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 Bismarck, like, yeah, that was your experience. I sure hope this multi fella knows what he's doing.
2: <laughs> it scales so well. I think that's the mm-hmm. thing that really impressed me about it, and that I enjoyed yeah. is that the the same system can can well not accurately, but it can suitably sort of handle a tiny colonial skirmish in an African colony and then the exact same system can ramp up and fight World War I across yep. Europe and you don't really have to do anything else but watch the numbers get bigger like mm-hmm. it's, it's not a dramatically different thing from your point of view because as the disembodied sort of economic manager of the country you're just pumping more money and men into it and and yeah like you just said it's let the generals handle the actual fighting and the system just yeah I just really liked how it was able to scale from 1836 to 1936, which you would think would be almost impossible by sort of breaking it down into such an abstract concept and making it just more reliant on how much you can pour into the thing. Um, I think it did a fantastic job. Plus, this this is really weird phrase as all, but I I love the sound of it. I just want to get that out on the podcast too. The the little (laughs) rumbling artillery sounds you get in every one. No,
4: it's good. The The sound design and music design on this is definitely one of Paradox's best. Oh yeah, Across
3: yeah. If you board. if you want some upsetting uh, warfare noises, by the way, inv- invent and use poison gas. Ah, uh, yeah, I bet. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. great. Oh, and- I have
1: not actually deployed. Uh, yeah, chemical weapons. You
3: will feel like a monster, <laughs>
1: and you should. Good. That's really. Yeah, I. But I, I also really think that this was the way to go, mm-hmm. uh, as far as the combat yeah. system goes, and uh, for the, for a lot of the same reasons. And I think that you know another reason is to think about. Uh, I'm sure. Well, they've got lots. I'm sure of documentation on player behavior at Paradox now, and when you know you have a Hearts of Iron type game or something like that, the the what players are going to do is gravitate towards optimizing an army because I think that's just what you kind of expect to do in a strategy game, and um and so this could have easily veered into a war fighting game, and I'm I'm you know that's not what they wanted to accomplish with Victoria, so. Um, so yeah, I, this was it it needs i think some massaging uh but to treat war as a product of industry and have it your your role kind of be to look at where it's sensitive to trade disruption or you know supply chain uh issues um really smart and, uh, and you know as as you guys have uh, brought up you know it it scales about as well as you could across this time period
4: It also, this is just the historian in me, uh, one of the things that I loved the heck out of Victoria 2 for that I don't think was intended is that they captured a historical interaction where this is the period where the destructiveness of warfare is increasing and the economic returns to successful warfare are decreasing um, because you're getting to a point where it's better to build another factory than to spend the money on troops and take land. Um, and those lines cross somewhere before 1914. Um, and that's a, that's an argument that historians have made a uh, fellow Azar Gott makes it, I think pretty persuasively. And, and Victoria two managed to do this more or less by accident that emerged out of their systems. And Victoria three still has the systems for that um, late game wars. You can get, um, in, my, in, my, uh, in, my, in my Spain game, around like like 1900, I think, Russia declared a war to try and annex Moldovia, and, and Austria and a couple of the German states jumped in, and they killed like 10 million people for this province that was just not worth 10 million people. And that's kind of a, a, a beautiful historical lesson emerging... uh, emergently out of the mechanics um and what i really like with the war system for everything they abstract they take that and they make it really visible the war screen is now like this is how many of your people you've gotten killed this is how many of them are like amputees that can never work again yeah this is how much money you spent on this dumb idea you idiot and I love it. It's great. I completely,
3: I completely yeah. agree with that. For all that I don't like some of the lack of depth in the war, it does do a really good job of showing the futility of the industrialized warfare, especially over time as it adds more new stuff, right? Like at first wars happen and it's about maneuver and artillery and whether you got the jump on the other army or you have cannons, right? Or better cannons. And then over time, it becomes like, uh, maybe we shouldn't use so much artillery because we just turned thousands of square kilometers into mud some of the like, let's not can we not do that anymore
4: yeah some of the higher end military techs ramp up devastation too so you end up with like right. congratulations you've conquered the province i hope you weren't planning to do anything with it for the next 5 years um, right. While you have to detoxify the soil from all the poison gas you used and the unexploded ordnance that is just sitting around, if it, if you it goes John. on long enough,
3: um, uh, it's <laughs> no. I, and I am speaking from experience. If you do some chemical warfare around an area long enough, you can create zone rouge. You can you can create a red zone where the devastation just isn't. It just doesn't go away f- for so long. Like it's just not going to go away, right? You're just well, congratulations. It- you ruined this.
0: It has a knock on effect, too, because the productivity of that state goes down. It causes turmoil in that state, which makes people leave, which also makes the productivity go down kind of. It's like a triple whammy because they're going to leave. The people that are still there are going to be less productive. Everything's blown up. Their standard of living is going to go down, which is going to make everyone mad, which is going to create turmoil in other states, which also will then make the productivity go down even more. Um so it's just like yeah war is war is pretty bad. Yeah, congratulations.
4: You've created <laughs> you've created Weimar and post-war France. Good job. Um but like yeah, as a historian uh-huh. that warms my dark cold heart. Um <laughs> But I thought that was yeah. I thought that was an important an important lesson and one that that they now that they that they foregrounded. I just the the first time I looked at the war screen and and I saw that they're like you know the casualties aren't just floating numbers. They're going to total them up for you, and I—I I just, in—in—in in, in again, my weird morbid way, I smiled. I'm like, that's that's glorious because by the time we get to flamethrowers and machine guns, this is going to teach somebody a lesson.
2: I also yeah. really like the way yeah. that the diplomatic stuff, because uh, so I—I don't know if this was the same in Victoria too, but the way that each conflict begins with the sort of. Saber rattling diplomatic phase before it starts moving into mobilisation and then the outright warfare. Um, I had an incredible moment in my US game where I accidentally started World War One in in like 1899 because I'd been so focused on my sort of internal stuff that I'd gotten this you know I'd, I'd developed this insanely powerful economy that I'd gotten like quite frankly bored with. So I started meddling with international affairs and I just I just went over to Europe and there was an option to I forget the exact wording but it was basically like knock, would you like to knock Prussia down a peg
3: mm-hmm.
2: by like making an example of them? Cause they'd been, you know, making enemies or whatever in Europe. so I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds like fun. And then I, I, so I triggered that event and I'm like, I'm, I'm allies with the British empire. Nothing's going to come of this. Like this is going to be, and then I watched the diplomatic. So if, if you haven't played it yet, when you get to this sort of stage of a, of a diplomatic breakdown before a war, there's a list of potential combatants. Um, that's determined by their relationship to the countries involved and you start seeing these countries start committing themselves to one side or the other and sometimes you'll do this and, and no side will commit to, to anything but in this i i just assumed it was going to be me and britain and they would back down and then i started watching france russia yeah
0: if you put too much yeah. weight on one side of the scale then the other yeah. one tries yeah. to yeah. balance out and so out. suddenly yeah. this
2: little attempt to sort of like just knock Russia down a turned into this war that just killed millions and millions and millions of people over years that I think I eventually lost just because I, like, they just ground my numbers down. And I was like, man, that was really, I was almost thinking it was a bug. <laughs> like, oh, that was a shame. Oh. You know, that one, then I was like, oh, that is how it actually kind of happened though. <laughs> so like if everyone had picked sides and, and was sort of spoiling for a fight by 1899 and I just happened to be, Archduke Franz Ferdinand instead of something else. Like it was actually a really cool way to sort of set up the modeling for a First World War, almost as like, okay, look, if you want to do this because history did this, the way we're going to let diplomacy and warfare develop will sort of make this a very plausible thing you can do in your playthrough.
4: Well, and and it's it 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 wonderfully mirrors the sort of the diplomatic history, particularly I think of of Imperial Germany, where um, you know famously Kaiser Wilhelm bragged about how much he could get, quote, with the mailed fist that he would he would make extravagant demands and people would back down because Germany was really powerful until right in 1914 they didn't. And everything exploded and the system produces that same thing. You can, you know, you can go to some weak country and demand a bunch of their territory. And if nobody sides with them, they'll just let you have it, because they can't win a war with with a powerful state. Um but on the flip side, you've got to be worried that, like, if people want to take you down a peg, they could jump in on the other side, and you could start World War One over, you know, uh, <laughs> a relatively, uh, you know, minor flare-up, like the territorial integrity of Serbia.
3: Yeah,
0: it's and then you nice. lose the you lose the war, and you have to pay war reparations, and somebody goes, "Hey, uh." our standard of living has really gone down. You know whose fault I think that is? The generals. It's it's, it's immigrants. Yeah, definitely immigrants. And, uh, yeah, then... then, uh, I will say uh,
3: (laughs) that one of my problems with the game stems out of the warfare system and how it's (laughs) awesome that it's so systematized and I, I like the saber rattling. Right, Don't get me wrong. I like the diplomatic plays, but... I don't like the feeling that you have to you have to pick everything you want to get out of a war at the beginning, yep. right? There's no sort of disastrous, oh, I'm going to invade through Belgium into France, and so after this is over, they're going to give the Belgians all of my colonies, right? Like that sort of German World War I behavior can't actually be mimicked within the game, which is unfortunate yeah, in and- how it, it shakes out.
4: Yeah, And once a war starts, uh, the participants are pretty much fixed. So you can't have, for instance, Italy jumps into World War One late and then, you know, promptly uh, humiliates itself uh, on the Isonzo, and then switches sides. <laughs> that's World War II. Um, but yeah, don't
3: they switch Oh, don't they switch sides in World War
4: One? So Italy joins World War I. On the side of of the Allies, despite having had a treaty with the Germans, so yeah, they switch sides and then join the war. Whereas in World War ii they join the war and then switch sides,
3: like you do. Uh,
4: You know, as 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 you do. And in both cases, the Italian military performed poorly.
3: Look, they did all their doing well about two thousand years ago, and they're done. I know. (laughs) Used it up. It's gone. Anyways, the. Yeah, I just like that you, you can they do have a specific diplomatic option for the I'm going to invade Belgium to get through France, even yep. though they're neutral. You can do that, which is nice. I really I really like that. It's an important part of the politics of the period, which is that, like, you can just be in the way of one of these juggernauts as it wants to fight another juggernaut. Right. And I like seeing that play out. But I I don't like that there's no way for the United States to join World War One. And I don't like that there's no way to sort of the stakes of the conflict can infinitely escalate as more people join. But what actually comes out of it at the end, the actual proper mechanical stakes of who gets what and who has to pay who doesn't, there's no peace conference, right? right? There's no Mm -hmm. sort of grand agreement at the end. They're just like, well, I guess, I guess they got Alsace-Lorraine after all.
4: Yeah, and that
0: it also it 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 allows some annoying things to happen. Like if you're the U.S. and Mexico doesn't have any allies, you might be like, "I want the entire Southwest," and they just like back down and give you Arizona, and it's like, "All right, five more years to like go to war with Mexico again." There's no way to like push it if they back down. Yeah, you can't. You can't
3: insist. You'd be like, no, sir, I insist we're having a shooting. war. No, we're
0: having a war. Yeah, it's it's happening. I mobilized
3: all these troops and we are having a war. (laughs) Yeah,
4: that should be. that should be an option to take an infamy penalty and and refuse their effort to back down. Right. Well, um, let's go
0: around and kind of give our final thoughts on uh, how we're feeling about Victoria 3 and maybe who we think it's for. Uh, Luke, do you want to start?
2: Uh, Victoria three is for people who dream about changing the world, but they're also accountants.
0: <laughs> that's that's pretty fair. Uh, Ian, how are you feeling about it so far?
1: Uh, I'm. I, I've really enjoyed my time with it. I think I'm going to be playing it for a long time, but you know, with an eye to uh, looking what at how they fill it out. But at, where I'm at right now with it is. I, one of the discussions we had in grad school was uh about the the shift from kind of a realist uh, notion of international relations to the more the more current more modern uh liberalist mm-hmm. idea where rather than the number uh of battalions and your gdp uh, the the forces that you could field being the only thing that really mattered um the liberalist idea is that no, these institutions, the structures inside of a nation, the happiness of its people, even um, its literacy and the institutions that it's that that kind of f- compose that inner structure, those are just as important. And I think if I was going to illustrate that concept to somebody, I would hand them this game, and that would be what this is about. So yeah, I I, I don't know who it's for though because I've. <laughs> You know, like I've sat in library basements at uh, university uh, talking about this stuff, and so like it appeals to me on a kind of a, uh, a nerdy level from you know 15 years ago. But uh, but I, I, it's kind of a hard sell, I think. You know, to if I was going to introduce somebody to Paradox Games who hadn't played them before, I'd probably point them at Crusader Kings. Yeah. Um, Right. So I, I'm not sure. Um, I I think that most of the people who I don't know though. I think this is also very approachable compared to um like much more approachable than what I was expecting I guess from a Victoria game. So if it sounds cool like us talking about the economics of war and how that plays into your you know your politics and and uh social mobility if that's if those are the kinds of ideas that you like playing with then absolutely don't miss this.
0: John, where are you in your relationship with Victoria 3?
3: I enjoyed it a lot. I think it has some of the most interesting, some of the most impressive game design that Paradox has ever done as a studio in it, in the politics and economy systems. Um, it's, It's possible that I now think this is a better, it's probably not a better functioning system overall than what Hearts of Iron 4 has going on with its logistics and resources systems, but it's definitely a more impressive one, a more ambitious and interesting one and i really love that i love it for that and it's it has been a while since i played probably since eu4 since i played a new paradox game and i was like i'm very immediately excited about playing it again as a different country like i have my list of countries Mm -hmm. i want to try to play as with different goals to accomplish and that's the highest compliment i think i can give a paradox game
0: Brad, how did you end up feeling about it both just as like a person who plays video games and as like a history educator?
4: So, so you asked, like who is this game for and i just want to be like me. It's for me. They made it for me. <laughs> um, I have 300 hours on Victoria 2. I was the intended audience of this game. Um you know, so obviously I'm really enjoying it. Um I think as a as as a history educator I'm really quite impressed by this. I mean, any historian, i, I I'm you know going to have my laundry list of quibbles. You may have heard some of them. Um, but but I think that this expresses some historical ideas in a more mature, developed way than Victoria, too did. And I think that I think it's reflective of an increasingly I, th- I think paradoxes interaction with its historical um, uh sort of sources. And ideas is getting has gotten more sophisticated over time, and so I think this is a sort of exciting benchmark. I'm excited to see where they go um, from here. I mean, especially to see how, uh, assuming more than just me plays this game, um, <laughs> and it gets DLCs and expansion to see how they how they flesh it out. Because I think this is a this is a solid foundation that that could use a lot of flavor.
0: Yeah, I think I overall agree. I think the like the basic systems in Victoria 3 are probably the most interesting to me out of all of the the Paradox Grand Strategy games like Crusader Kings might be my favorite. Like it's it's an era I really like and I like the character focus. But, you know, my biggest criticism of it has always been that it's it's mostly about the top, like 1% of 1% of like ultra rich people in the middle ages. And that's kind of whose story you're following for the most part. Um, So Victoria three is, you know, it's trying to be about all the people. Um, So I think in that sense, it has the potential to be more of a human game uh, than Crusader Kings is, Um, you know, it's, it's still, very rough around the edges right now. I think it, it has a while to go before it's just something that I could, you know, play for, you know, 500 hours and, and completely lose track of time. Um, but I'm still playing and I still have campaigns I want to do. And um, it's it's really remarkable what they've been able to pull off at the end of the day with with just the depth of the simulation and and all of the I, I just I love that there's a game where I can finally do communism. That's actually communism. <laughs> that's, that's like my pet thing that I love about this game. It's like I can actually create a society where the workers equally share in the uh, in the the output of their their labor. Um, and uh, for that, for that, I I do uh, have to tip my my hat to it. Um, so I think that's going to be all for now I doubt this will be the last time we talk about Victoria 3 Uh, so if you want to hear more in the future um, you can always check us out uh, on the Idle Thumbs Network which we are a part of at uh, IdleThumbs.net slash 3MA you can also find us on Twitter where we are at 3MA let us know how you're feeling about Victoria 3 tell us stories about your campaigns, what have you been doing Um, We're also supported by listeners just like you on Patreon, where you can go to patreon.com slash 3MA and get access to uh, bonus episodes where Rob and Troy talk about movies. You can get access to our Discord. Uh, We have like a dedicated Victoria 3 channel going on right now where we're all trying to figure out how things work. Um, And uh, yeah, I think that is going to do it for this episode. Uh, so for Brett and for
4: Luke and for Ian and for John, this is Lynn saying good night.